Hello there, Lafayette. This is Joe Cunningham here on News Talk 96.5 KPL. It's a warm day, but a beautiful day nonetheless. Hope you guys are having a good one here as we get close to wrapping up the week. Now, if you were paying attention today and you noticed on KPL965.com and on KPL's Facebook page, we already have a write-up of the Supreme Court's ruling in the Bruin case today. That is the 6-3 decision written by Clarence Thomas that is a firm victory for uh, gun rights and Second Amendment rights advocates. Uh, this is a very big deal. And we need to talk about it. We need to talk about not just why it's a big deal, but also the left's reaction to it. The left is apoplectic. They are going into Chernobyl level meltdowns over this decision today. And you need to know that what the left is saying and what the media is saying is not true. It is absolutely not accurate. So what did the Supreme Court decide today? In a 6-3 decision along ideological lines, the Supreme Court said that a 100-year-old law in New York was unconstitutional. That law, uh, that law in New York basically said that uh, authorities were able to use very subjective criteria, meaning you have to prove that you need a gun for personal safety in order to get a concealed carry permit in New York. That law made uh, that it, it would have the authorities make very arbitrary decisions. You can make up a reason for to, to get a concealed carry permit. If they didn't like you personally, they could say no. There's no objective criteria. There's no scorable criteria or, any, or rankable criteria here. And the Supreme Court, in an opinion authored by Justice Clarence Thomas, who turned 74 today, by the way, I thought it was pretty neat that uh, this opinion written by him dropped on his birthday. In the court's opinion, written by Clarence Thomas, the court determined that allowing government officials to use subjective discretion when determining which applicants had a good reason to need a permit violated the Constitution. What Clarence Thomas wrote specifically is that New York's, uh, this, is, this is from the opinion itself, New York's proper cause requirement violates the 14th Amendment by preventing law-abiding citizens with ordinary self-defense needs from exercising their Second Amendment right to keep and bear arms in public for self-defense. The dissent, which was written by uh, outgoing Justice Stephen Breyer and was uh, signed on to by the other two progressive justices, Sonia Sotomayor and Elena Kagan, uh, what Breyer wrote actually... Uh, it's it's pretty outstanding. Many states have tried to address some of the dangers of gun violence just described by passing laws that limit in various ways who may purchase, carry, or use firearms of different kinds. The court today severely burdens states' efforts to do so. It invokes the Second Amendment to strike down a New York law regulating the public carriage of concealed handguns. In my view, that decision rests upon several serious mistakes. Breyer then goes on to talk about a rise of gun violence in the country. Notably absent from Breyer's dissent here is any real constitutional 
merit in the dissent's arguments. And in fact, that was pointed out in Justice Samuel Alito's uh, concurrence. He wrote a concurring opinion. In his concurring opinion, in light of what we have actually held, it is hard to see what legitimate purpose can possibly be served by most of the dissent's lengthy introductory section. Why, for example, does the dissent think it is relevant to recount the mass shootings that have occurred in recent years? Does the dissent think that laws like New York's prevent or deter such atrocities? Will a person bent on carrying out a mass shooting be stopped if he knows it is illegal to carry a handgun outside of the home? And how does the dissent account for the fact that one of the mass shootings near the top of its list took place in Buffalo? The New York law at issue in this case obviously did not stop that perpetrator. Alito, with some absolute fire, aimed at outgoing Justice Stephen Breyer. The court, in its opinion, did did justice to the Second Amendment. Now, of course, this is leading a lot of progressives to just absolutely lose their minds. Uh, in particular, um, notable sane human being and internet commentator Keith Olbermann absolutely lost it on Twitter today, saying, quote, it has become necessary to dissolve the Supreme Court of the United States. The first step is for a, a state, the court, has now forced guns upon to ignore this ruling. No, the court didn't force guns upon a state. At no point did the Supreme Court do that. But Olbermann absolutely lost his mind. In a subsequent tr- uh, tweet, he uh, he used the F word and said F, uh, Clarence Thomas, Samuel Alito, and he listed all the conservative justices. And then he said, and paralegal Coney Barrett. So not only was he profane and vulgar, he was also misogynistic toward the only conservative woman on the court. Pretty telling. Uh, As I said, Keith Olbermann, noted constitutional scholar and extremely sane online commentator, only online because he can't seem to hold a steady job as a commentator anywhere else, uh, just absolutely lost it. You had others, Jeffrey Tubin, CNN sexual deviant and legal analyst, Uh, said Second Amendment equals the First Amendment. You have the right to speak without prior permission from the government or regulation of content, so you have the right to carry a weapon without prior permission or regulations from government. Jeffrey Tubin is being sarcastic there. He does not like that. But what he's actually writing is exactly what the founders intended. Uh, You have former U.S. Attorney Preet Bahara, who says on Twitter, SCOTUS neither read the room nor the Constitution correctly. I'm pretty sure SCOTUS did read the Constitution because they followed the Second Amendment and the 14th Amendment. Uh, Neil Katyal, a former uh, acting U.S. solicitor, said it's going to be very weird if the Supreme Court ends a constitutional right to obtain abortion next week saying it should be left to the states to decide right after it just imposed a constitutional right to concealed carry of firearms, saying it cannot be left up to the states to decide. This uh, Neil Kachal, former uh, U.S. Solicitor General, uh, also a former Supreme Court lawyer, seems to be mistaken. It's not very weird at all for the Supreme Court to say that you have a universal right to conceal carry, but not to say that about, but not to say that you have that universal right for an abortion. Most legal scholars would contend that that's because the Constitution explicitly states that your right to keep and bear arms shall not be infringed. It does not say that about abortion. 
Why? Because the right to abortion doesn't exist in the Constitution. But the left is losing their minds over this. The media is going to continue to talk about how apocalyptic this is in the legal community. And I have bad news. Tomorrow is the last scheduled day of the Supreme Court term. It's the last day they're scheduled to release opinions. At best, they can add a day or two next week, but it's now very likely, and I told you guys this would happen when the Dobbs opinion, the, the draft opinion leaked. I told you guys then, the end of June, the end of June is when we're going to see the Dobbs opinion actually drop. And it could very well drop tomorrow. Now, if you have a one-two punch of a big Second Amendment win today and overturning Roe versus Wade tomorrow, the left the media, Democrats in Congress, they are all going to flip out and lose their minds. And they're going to try, they're going to try so very hard to campaign on this and they think is going to motivate their voters. There's a problem, though. And I'll explain that problem right after this break. You're listening to The Joe Cunningham Show, News Talk 96.5. KPL will be back after this obscene profit timeout, as Rush Limbaugh would have said. Welcome back to the Joe Cunningham Show here on News Talk 96.5. KPL, yeah, the left is losing their minds over today's Supreme Court decision in the Bruin case. Uh, it's a big, big win for Second Amendment advocates. And I have, uh, I have uh, the, the story written at KPL965.com. Also, going live just moments ago uh, was today's show notes, also at KPL965.com. So you can, uh, you can go to the website, uh, a win for the Second Amendment. That's today's show notes. Uh, it breaks this down. Uh, I want to I, I want to read from the Firearms Policy Coalition, one of the big gun rights groups that was celebrating today's victory. When they kind of break down what uh, what the Supreme Court actually said, I, I want to read these bullet points to you because it's important that you understand just uh, how big a win this was. The court expressly rejected the two-step approach often employed by lower courts since the McDonald's Chicago decision in 2010, saying that the Constitution demands a test rooted in the Second Amendment's text as informed by history. The court held that when the Second Amendment's plain text covers an individual's conduct, the Constitution presumptively protects that conduct. Quoting the McDonald plurality opinion, the court held that the constitutional right to bear arms in public for self-defense is not a second-class right subject to an entirely different body of rules than the other Bill of Rights guarantees. The court also said that we know of no other constitutional right that an individual may exercise only after demonstrating to government officers some special need. That is not how the First Amendment works when it comes to unpopular speech or the free exercise of religion. It is not how the Sixth Amendment works when it comes to a defendant's right to confront the witnesses against him, and it is not how the Second Amendment works when it comes to public carry for self-defense. Ultimately, the court held that New York's proper clause requirement violates the 14th Amendment in that it prevents the law-abiding citizens with ordinary self-defense needs from exercising their right to keep and bear arms. That is the breakdown of what today's decision means and why the left hates it. The left hates the Bill of Rights. You have to understand, the left does not really like the Bill of Rights. Do you know why? Because the left is the party, it is the political ideology, the political movement of government power. It believes that the government can solve 
all of our problems. And the Bill of Rights is a list of negative powers for the government. The Bill of Rights says what the government cannot do, and they hate that. They hate limits on the government. That's why they are so against the Second Amendment. That's why they've been making this big push against religion in the public square. That's why they really like it when social media companies can take down the platforms of powerful people. They don't like a list of power stating what the government cannot do. But that is what the Bill of Rights does. It tells the government you cannot do this. You cannot infringe somebody's right to speak publicly. You cannot infringe upon their ability to practice whatever religion they wish to in the style they wish to. You cannot infringe on their ability to petition the government for a redress of grievances. You cannot infringe on their ability to keep and bear arms. But there's a problem coming down the pike. The Senate has cleared yet another hurdle that allows its gun control bipartisan measure to come up for a full vote. And we're expecting that vote either this afternoon or evening or tomorrow. And our own Bill Cassidy is one of the 14 Republicans that's fully on board with this bill. You have to understand the most dangerous words that you can hear come out of a politician's mouth is we have to do something. There are no scarier five words that you can hear any politician say. We have to do something. When you hear a politician say that, pack up the wife, the kids, the money, empty out the bank account, go head to the hills because they are coming for you in some way. They are still pushing red flag laws. They are still pushing for a framework, a structure for red flag laws to give to other states so that the states may pass their red flag laws. It take, Did you know that the Bipartisan Community Safety Act, did you know it takes 25 pages in the bill to actually address guns in any way? There is no gun measure in that bill for the first 25 pages of the bill. Instead, it goes into the red flag stuff. It goes into mental health stuff. And don't get me wrong. I've been preaching about the mental health crisis. I think we should do more. I said yesterday, I fully advocate taking the mental health stuff and putting that in a separate bill. That's the bulk of the money that's being spent by this bill. And I'm in favor of passing that. But the red flag stuff, it's a due process nightmare waiting to happen. Y'all remember when the IRS was caught going after conservative organizations going after their tax exempt status because of how they of, of their political affiliation. Y'all remember that? Now imagine that power in the hands of government agencies should somebody accuse you of being a lunatic because of what you believe and the state can come and take away your ability to have a gun. That's what a red flag law ultimately can lead to. And for anybody who says stop with the slippery slope nonsense, every time the slippery slope has been used and, uh, and has been laughed off by the left, the left then turns around and makes the slippery slope actually happen. It's not a far-fetched statement to say that a red flag law can lead to abuse over political enemies. It's not a far-fetched thought. 
And that's the big concern that you have to have with red flag laws. Some of the measures in there, with the exception of making it harder for anybody between the ages of 18 and 20, making it harder, making it longer for that they have to wait in order to get a gun. Some of the measures in there I actually am okay with, even if it is gun control. I think that they are relatively harmless. But red flag laws and that measure to make a, a, an adult wait longer, and yes, 18 to 20, legally an adult, the measures to make an illegal adult wait longer, it's absurd. It's not, it's not good policy. And the thing is, the Democrats are excited about this because Republicans have opened the door. Now, Republicans can, uh, now the Democrats can go back and say, well, you compromised on this one. Why won't you compromise on this one? They'll pressure them and they will continue to say, we have to do something. Let's take a break. When we come back, there is a clip that I want to try to play for y'all to explain just how bad the situation is for the Democrats. All that and more here on the Joe Cunningham Show, News Talk 96.5 KPL. Welcome back to the Joe Cunningham Show News Talk 96.5 KPEL 232-1542. If you want to call in, be part of the conversation, you can also reach out on Twitter at Joe P. Cunningham there, Facebook.com slash Joe Cunningham Show, or you can email me Joe at redstate.com. Joe Biden's highest favorable rating in the polling average since he took office is 55.8%. That was at the very beginning. His unfavorable rating right now is 56.1. That's on average. He is averaging in the polls 56.1% disapproval, unfavorable. His unfavorable rating is right now higher than his highest favorable rating since he took office. He is never been as popular as he is unpopular right this minute. And Democrats are heading for the hills. I want to play this clip. This was on uh, this was on CNN with CNN's John Berman. And I have to clarify, this is a clip from Joe Cunningham, the guy running for governor in South Carolina. This is not Joe Cunningham, the voice, talking to you right now. There's two Joe Cunninghams out there. I apologize for the confusion. This is South Carolina Democratic gubernatorial candidate Joe Cunningham on Joe Biden. Listen to this. You just gave me. You think Joe Biden is too old to run for re-election. Is that what you're saying? Yeah, I think we need to have a new generation of leadership emerge. And this is, and that means Jim Clyburn to retire as well, you think? Again, you know, this is looking. I mean, we only know if Jordy Whippins will be running in 2024. And again, I appreciate all of his service and what he's done for our country. And it's nothing personal. Uh, I get along fine with him. And, but as we look towards the future, we got to be looking to provide a new vision. I, I, that was Democratic gubernatorial candidate Joe Cunningham of South Carolina saying Joe Biden's too old to run for president. And he's right. It's kind of elder abuse right now to put Joe Biden out there day in and day out and listen to the things he has to say only for his White House to have to come in behind him and clean up the message. What's what I would quibble with the other Joe Cunningham over is just how deep the Democrats bench is. Who exactly would run for president behind Joe Biden in 2024? 
who would take his spot? Pete Buttigieg has all but disappeared while there's an, a gasoline crisis going on. The guy in charge of transportation is nowhere to be seen on this issue. He was also nowhere to be seen while the ports were still crowded and there was no way for supply for the supply chain to recover because unions were going on strike. Uh, the harbors, the docks, they were all overcrowded. Pete Buttigieg is nowhere to be seen, and he's constantly kind of been tossed around as the alternative to maybe Kamala Harris. Kamala Harris can't run for president. She dropped out before Iowa even happened in 2020. And right now, as much as much as Joe Biden's poll numbers stink, in remember I've mentioned a New Hampshire poll that had uh, Ron DeSantis at 39% support among Republicans and Donald Trump at 37%. Everybody was talking about that, including me. You know what was buried in that poll? Kamala Harris's favorability to unfavorability is 23 to 64. It's 13 points lower than Joe Biden's favorability. Kamala Harris is 13 points more unfavorable than Joe Biden. She can't run for president in 2024. Pete Buttigieg can't. There's nobody else in the Biden administration who could. So what about Republicans from the rest of the country? Let's see. Who is there? Uh, Stacey Abrams is about to lose in uh, Georgia for a second time. She can't run again. She can't even win her home state. Stacey Abrams has only ever won one election. That was for a state legislative seat in Georgia. Uh, Beto O'Rourke consistently fails. He's going to lose in Texas in his bid for governor. Nobody's even talking about Beto O'Rourke right now. There's nobody in the swing state of Florida to be able to challenge Ron DeSantis. He's going to escape. That his his worst case scenario is that he's got to go up against Charlie Crist again. I say again, Charlie Crist is running again. DeSantis has never gone up against him, but Ron DeSantis is going to win that one very, very easily. What about the others that ran for president in 2020, that ran in the Democratic primary? Not a single one of them has a shot. The Democrats don't have a good national bench. They have a bench in some states. They do not have a bench at the national level. They do not have the ability to win a national race right now. Their best case scenario is that Donald Trump runs because Joe Biden has beaten Donald Trump before. That's their best case. And Donald Trump could beat Biden again or could beat Biden this time because Biden's numbers are so bad. The problem for Republicans in that case, by the way, is that it takes four years just to clean up what Joe Biden has done, not to mention the other four years that you would need to actually make improvements to the country. And Trump would only have four years. He can't run for a second term. He's already had one term. So after four years, the Republicans would have to find somebody else. But the Democrats really would love Donald Trump versus Joe Biden. It's Joe Biden's best chance to win again. And even then, it's not a guarantee. Joe Biden's numbers are so abysmal, Democrats are running away. You have this Democratic gubernatorial candidate in South Carolina saying, yeah, Joe Biden's too old. We need somebody else. We need a new generation of leadership. The Democrats don't have it. But I have said it before. And I will say it again. The best hope for the Democrats is the fact that the Republican Party chooses horrible Senate candidates 
and horrible leaders. So long as you have Kevin McCarthy in charge of the Republicans in the House, so long as state Republican parties are picking Mehmet Oz and uh, oh, what is the uh, uh, and Eric Greitens in Missouri, as long as they're picking terrible candidates, the Republicans will never quite be as dominant as they should be. But it's bad for the Democrats. Just on the raw politics of the whole situation, every number indicates a bloodbath. The Republicans can screw it up, but I don't think even the Republicans of today can screw it up as badly as the Democrats have in the however long Joe Biden's been in office. What, 18 months? Here's the thing. Joe Biden's not on the ballot in 2022. But every Democrat is tied to his policy. Remember the other day I said, back when George H.W. Bush was president, in the midterm election of his one term, Republicans, at the suggestion of the Republican National Committee, ran against George H.W. Bush, and they were able to mitigate losses. George H.W. Bush wasn't happy, but Republicans as a party were able to survive that midterm cycle. Look at it now. Look at it right now. Not a single Democrat in Congress, not a single Democrat in the Senate is running against Joe Biden. The far left is pushing Joe Biden onward because he's been he's been trying to get what they want done. Not a single moderate is coming out and saying we've screwed up except for Joe Manchin. And Joe Manchin's not up for re-election. The Democrats need new blood. And they do not have it. 232-1542 if you want to call in and be part of the conversation. When we come back, a very important speech was just made a little while ago. I want to tell you who said it and what the speech was about. All that and more here on the Joe Cunningham Show, News Talk 96.5 KPL. Welcome back to the Joe Cunningham Show, News Talk 96.5 KPL. I want to read a bit of a speech to you. I apologize for the length of, of what I'm reading to you, but it's important. It's a it's a major it's a major speech that has U.S. political implications, even though it was given overseas. We're proud and grateful for our Iranian-American community, but along with them, our hearts are with those that were left behind, for whom life has been a misery and a hardship day in and day out in ways that you understand we, that we never fully will. But your witness here at Ashraf 3 your voice in the world stage is more important than ever before. What the Iranian people have endured since 1979 will be recorded by history as one of the great tragedies of the modern era. As a former elected leader, as an American citizen, and as a man of faith who believes that we are all created in the image of God. Iranian people have always had a special place in my heart. I'm deeply humbled that Miriam Rajabi began her remarks today, reflecting on my work long before I was vice president. In 2009, like so many other Americans, I remember watching with great hope and anticipation as the people of Iran rose up to claim their birthright of freedom. In the 2009 uprising, millions of courageous young men and women filled the streets of Tehran and Tabriz. 
and what appeared for all the world to see in every city and village in between, denouncing the clearly fraudulent elections and demanding an end to decades of repression. Those brave protesters looked to the leader of the free world for support. But as I saw firsthand as a member of Congress, then the president of the United States remained silent. But I knew where the heart of the American people was. And so as a member of the House Foreign Affairs Committee, I saw that lack of action for what it was, an abdication of American leadership as courageous Iranians took to the streets on behalf of freedom. The American cause is freedom, and in this cause, we must never be silent. That was Mike Pence speaking overseas today to the People's Mojahideen Organization of Iran, a resistance in exile. They're actually in exile from Iran, but they are the opposition to the Iranian regime. They want to bring freedom and democracy to Iran. The current regime in Iran is hostile to the United States and it is hostile to freedoms. Remember the Arab Spring. That's what Mike Pence was referencing in his speech. Remember the Arab Spring when America stood silently by as a rigged election led to the regime staying in power. The regime then cut off the internet access of protesters in the streets all throughout of Iran, cutting off their communication with the outside world, cutting off their ability to communicate with the rest of the world, the fraud that was happening and the abuses that were happening under Iran, under Iran's ruling class. And Mike Pence is right. The American cause is freedom. We should never be silent about that cause. But there is a political aspect to this that you need to be paying attention to as well. Mike Pence is absolutely right in what he's saying. But he's not the only Republican to go overseas and meet with this opposition group. Mike Pompeo. Mike Pompeo was in Albania on May 16th and met with this group. You will probably see other Republicans going to meet with this group. For Republicans, opposition to Iran is vital. Iran is an anti-democracy uh, anti-democracy government. Iran has also vowed to get rid of America. It is an avowed enemy of America. They want America wiped off the map. They don't have the ability to do it, but they want it. Iran is the greatest threat to stability in the Middle East. Now, I'm not saying we need to be back in the Middle East and be active in the Middle East with our military, but we do need to be supporting any cause that disrupts the disruptor in the Middle East. Under Barack Obama, now under Joe Biden, the U.S. government has done a lot of damage to our relationships with countries in the Middle East. There needs to be a solid American-backed opposition 
to Iran. The other countries in the Middle East want that. Saudi Arabia wants to be our friend because they know how destabilizing Iran is. The Abraham Accords, the biggest foreign policy victory of the Trump administration, was signed in part by Middle Eastern countries, by Arab nations and Israel, not because the United States asked them to, although that was a part of it, but because the United States is the biggest opponent of Iran on the global stage. And every one of those countries also recognizes just how destabilizing Iran is in that part of the world. They all want to oppose Iran. But Iran is trying to be a nuclear power. And they are just crazy enough to go to war and launch nuclear weapons at countries in opposition to them. First stop Israel. And every other country knows that that is a serious, serious problem. If Iran gets their hands on nuclear weapons, the fact that they already back terror organizations and them having weapons of mass destruction will only mean bad things for Israel, our allies in the Middle East, and the people who want to be our allies in the Middle East. Mike Pence is over there giving a speech to the opposition of the Iranian regime. Is this an organization that's probably 100% aligned with U.S. interests? Probably not. We don't need to be going over there and setting up democracy. We don't need to go over there and build a new Iran. But we do need to give backing to the right people. And more importantly, we need to get rid of the destabilizing elements in the Middle East that are causing the chaos on the world stage. Mike Pence is absolutely right. The American cause is for freedom. And if there's one thing that Iran is not, Iran is not free. We have a duty to support those that would help stabilize that part of the world and help stabilize a region that our allies are in. All right, for the Joe Cunningham Show, it's a 23-hour break. For you Offsides fans, Mark and I are back in just a few minutes. In the meantime, check me out on Twitter at Joe P. Cunningham, Facebook.com slash Joe Cunningham Show, and check out the podcast version of the show on Apple, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. Be sure to keep, uh, be sure to stay tuned. Offsides will be here in just a moment with me and Mark Pope. For the rest of y'all, have a great evening. Talk to you tomorrow.